As we continue in worship this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to to John chapter 2. It's the second chapter of John's Gospel. We'll commence our reading there at the 12th verse. John chapter 2, starting there at verse 12. The word of our God. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those that sold oxen, and sheep, and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep, and the oxen, and poured out the money, poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building it, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore his was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless us under it richly this morning. It's been some time since we have, have looked, as it were, at the timeline that we find ourselves in. And so I think it's right for us to ask a basic question. What, what is the, this moment that John is narrating for us? How does this fit in the overall timeline and narrative of Christ's life? And the answer might be somewhat surprising to us. Really, John 1 to really the middle of chapter 4 is the first eight and a half months of Christ's earthly ministry that is not given to us by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. These first four chapters of John's Gospel give us moments that no other Gospel writer has given to us. What happens here then is we we get a picture, a glimpse of the earliest parts of Christ's public ministry after his baptism and before he commences what would be the largest portion of his itinerant ministry. Eight and a half months John gives us that are peculiar only to his gospel. And so we have in our text this morning, starting at verse 12, a very, very early moment. Again, a moment not given to us by any of the other writers. The cleansing of the temple. I know this text is familiar to us, but but I want us to see this text as closely as we can before we try to apply it to ourselves. I want you to notice, first of all, friend, that that John, as the inspired historian, is clear to communicate there was something of an order 
to Christ's movement here. Before he comes to the temple, he goes to Capernaum. And, and the writer tells us he's only there for a couple of days. Now, in one sense, you and I materially gain nothing by that piece of information. So why is that included? Now, the answer to that question lies in this, that, that Capernaum, from the very earliest moments of Christ's ministry, was chosen as his center. This would become, really, his base of ministry, and it became so very, very early on. And, and we'll see. Uh, we don't have time this morning to contemplate why that's significant, but we'll see that that is quite significant, especially when we come to Matthew 11 in a couple decades' time. But we're told after we leave Capernaum, then Christ goes to Jerusalem. I want you to recognize, folks, that's 85 miles. 85 miles if you're taking the King's Highway, which would have been likely the most common route between Capernaum and Jerusalem at the time. 85 miles. And why does he do that? So that he might keep the Passover. At verse 14, we find him entering Jerusalem with his disciples. Now, friend, it's important for us, I think, to keep in mind what you have here. If you can visualize this for a moment, Christ comes into Jerusalem, and by far the most, the most, oppo- the, the, the most protruding building, of course, was the temple. Uh, that cast long shadows over the entirety of the city. And it's to that that Christ goes. He walks into the temple. But what does that mean? I want you to recognize, first of all, that we're talking here about Herod's temple. And it might be wise for us to begin here by trying to visualize what this would have looked like. Herod's temple was twice the size of Solomon's. When Christ entered into Jerusalem, he he saw an edifice that was larger than anything else in Palestine. It was built in such a way that retaining walls were necessary because valleys had to be filled in order for Herod to erect this building. Whole valleys were filled and retaining walls, incredible retaining walls were built just so this new temple could be erected. As you made your way up to those retaining walls, you came to a major plaza. As you passed through that plaza, there were two ways of entry. They cut through these walls of retention and, and underneath the royal porticos. There were only two entryways. And what, what was required then was that you were to walk, you were to ascend through those stairwells that were narrow and dark to another plaza. And I want you to recognize that that ascent was not only long, but it had a real effect on those who went through it. You walked through these dark corridors until you came to what was the very first thing you saw, the holy place. You weren't even in the temple yet. You were simply in the plaza where the temple was. But the holy place was an edifice that was twice the height of Solomon's. It was made of marble and whitewashed stone. And on top of that, it was gold-plated. Even even on a cloudy day, the brilliance of that was nearly blinding. And so you walked into that moment where, where all of a sudden the blinding light of what was to be the worship of God 
was your first impression. But that plaza that you enter into was called the outer court, or more accurately, the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was 30 football fields in length and and width. This is a massive structure. All of this constructed by Herod. And as Christ and his disciples saw that, as they drew their eyes down from the holy place and onto this vast plaza, the court of the Gentiles, that's where, that's where you find the merchants. This part of the temple, this court was filled, 30 football fields with money changers, and others who were selling all kinds of things, presumably simply for sacrifice. That's our scene. There were those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, of course, for sacrifices. There were those who were exchanging money. The money changers were there because in order for one to to pay the, the shekel for the temple, it had to be in Tyrian coinage, it couldn't be in Roman coinage. You remember that Roman coinage at this time had the imprint of the emperor on it, which you could worship. It was a genuine idol. And so the Jews very early on had petitioned and successfully petitioned Rome to have their own coinage that they could use in the temple. These coins lacked the imperial effigy. And so the money changers were there so that they could have clean coinage. When we come to Luke's gospel, especially that point will become important. But as Christ looks at this vast sea of merchants and money changers, the text tells us that he makes a cord, a scourge, and he drives them all out of the temple. Friend, I I suppose when we read this text, we forget just what that means. But John's gospel is very clear. Christ cleared the court of the Gentiles. All of them, all of them were removed. The early church fathers said that this was a miracle, given that it was simply one man, given the vastness of of the plaza itself and the number of merchants that were there, given the fact that there there were temple guards that were there specifically simply to keep the peace and prevent this kind of thing from happening, given the fact that on the left-hand side as you were walking up the stairwells, you saw the imposing fortress of the Antonia in which the Romans were supposed to keep order as well, and none of them stirred. Christ cleanses this court, and it seems that none can stay his hand. Again, the early church fathers argued that this was one of Christ's earliest miracles. A remarkable moment in which the power of Christ is clearly exhibited. But as John presents this account to us, he highlights in verse 17 the point that we can't get away from. It's the memory of the disciples, how they reflect on this moment that the inspired historian would have us reflect on. He tells us here simply that they remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That's that's a quotation, of course, from Psalm 69. And what the disciples are seeing then, according to this text, is first of all that Christ had a zeal 
for God's house. That was evident. But I want you to notice, as you look at Psalm 69, even as it's quoted for us here, and you look at Christ's own words, my Father's house, I want you to notice a difference in pronoun. I think we can quickly overlook this, but but it's crucial for our understanding of this text. Christ, as he's cleansing this vast court, he says that it is his Father's house. The psalmist in Psalm 69 refers to the temple as God's house. I want you to recognize, beloved, that here Christ is answering a question that nobody asked him. Here he's clearly demonstrating that as a son, as God's unique son, he had a right to do what he did. He was vested with a prerogative to clear his father's house because it was his father's house. It was both God's and his father's. But how was it that these disciples saw that? It was by purging. I find that so striking, don't you? It's the, it's the purging of this house in which the disciples reflect on the zeal that Christ has for it. And surely, beloved, that leads us to think. It leads us to think about how Christ is revealing himself to his people early on in this gospel. It actually should drive our minds back to the 14th verse of chapter 1. You remember there that there the, the gospel writer tells us that they beheld his glory. And now he tells us these disciples are making notes of what they see. They're making notes of what they see Christ doing and what, and what they see being exhibited through Christ's work. Beloved, as you look at the cleansing of the temple, then what, what you see is the zeal of Christ, yes, but, but it belongs to that broader idea that they are beholding the glory of Christ as they walk with Him. And what this text teaches us then is that Christ's glory is exhibited in His zeal. We've seen that in Cana, exhibited in His gracious and and omnipotent work, but but we see it now exhibited in His zeal for His Father's house. And I want you to see that really under three headings. I want us to see, first of all, how this zeal demonstrates his, His earnest desire to see the prerogatives of His Father maintained. I want us to see that, first of all, in a a fact that we could quickly overlook. Christ exhibits this glory through his zeal to keep his Father's law. The Passover was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's a detail we could quickly overlook, but friend, I want you to notice this, that that is a clear demonstration of what Christ intended to do, of what he was by his office. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Here you have Christ, even even though it's an act of humiliation, even though it's part of his condescension and, and entering into that form of a servant that he was, he takes upon himself the whole law 
And in a unique way, as our charity, he makes himself liable to it. You see that even in our text. But what I want you to recognize here in this text, beloved, is that in this verse, when he says the Passover was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, the writer there, John, is telling us that it was causative. It was because the Passover was at hand that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And I know you could say that, well, pastor, that's a mundane point. But is it? Even though it was an act of humiliation, even though it belonged to his his work of becoming like a servant, Christ went willingly as his Father had commanded him. He went as the one who could say, I delight to do thy will. He had a zeal for his Father's will. We see that even in how he keeps the law. Now, friend, as we come into the temple, we also see this so very clearly, don't we? His urging to those who were merchants in the court of the Gentiles was this, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. In other words, he's reiterating that the temple was for divine worship. It was for divine worship. And friend, I want you to notice that as he looks at the temple, he, he gives it that high commendation, that th- those descriptors that you find in the Old Testament that should nearly take your breath away. It is his father's house. And to, to translate it otherwise, and, and just as legitimately, it is his father's dwelling. This is the place where God was in a special way. And and we've already thought, as we've thought about Psalm 84, what what sense we're supposed to understand that. But, But the idea is Christ regards this house as the dwelling of his Father. And as such, it was reserved for public worship. This is how people appeared before God. And if they are doing so, well, in the words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes, they are to be those who keep their feet when they go to that house. They're to honor the prerogative of God. If God has said this is its purpose, that purpose is to be kept. Here Christ is reiterating that in the worship of God there is to be no innovation because it is his Father's house. He sets the order. He, in the mount, has set the pattern. And any innovation is a dishonor to his Father. And so, beloved, here in this text, you and I, we can't come away from it without seeing that Christ possesses a zeal for the purity of God's worship. And that this, too, is a mark of Christ's holiness. Christ has a zeal for the purity of public worship. As we think about this text, and specifically this text as it reveals to us the glory of Christ. I want you to think about the uniqueness of this for a moment. How unique is it that this one, the God-man, is so zealous for the house of God? All you have to do is survey Scripture briefly. I know these texts will be familiar to you. Man neglects the worship of God through Haggai the prophet. Israel is chided, ye dwell in your sealed houses, and this house, that is the temple, lies in waste. That's what men typically do. 
we neglect the worship of God. We also treat it contemptuously. We say the table of the Lord is contemptible. What a weariness is it? Malachi chapter 1. That's what men typically do. We adulterate it. That is, we innovate. We make the worship of God something that we control and that is to our taste and liking. Such that God must command us time and again, seek not your own heart and your own eyes in my worship. But Christ, he is zealous to see it pure and according to God's command. Beloved, this is a mark of the holiness of Christ, a mark of his absolute uniqueness. And we can't get away from that. His zeal for his father's house, his zeal for the purity of public worship is part of his glory. And I want you to notice this too. Beloved, that certainly stands to reason. It stands to reason that this demonstrates the holiness of Christ because that zeal for worship is really a zeal in in its broadest sense simply for the glory of God. Anything that is dishonoring to God in public worship is as it were doubly dishonoring to God given that God has said the public worship of His name is the place of His dwelling. Is where He is found specially. Christ here demonstrates that He has a heart. An earnest heart that all that is done in it is done in such a way that God is exalted. Beloved, you and I live in a generation of will worship where we take our own likings and our own tastes over the honor and the glory of God. Not so our Christ. And beloved, then you have here in this text a picture of one who regards God's honor overall. And you see that manifest in his dealings with public worship. I want you to notice that there is even something further we can say though. Yes, Christ is is here urging the prerogatives of God upon his own worship. But there's something else, and this is our second point this morning. He has a zeal for his father's people. His father's people. It's the purging of the temple that you and I encounter. It is the cleansing of his father's house that John presents to us. But, but I want you to notice, if you look back to our, what we read in Malachi chapter 3, you and I are supposed to see in this moment something of a broader kind. We're supposed to see the Lord coming suddenly into his temple and purifying the sons of Levi. You remember, beloved, that the temple was, first of all, the place of public worship for the Old Covenant, but it also stood, it represented so many things, and among those things, it represented the mystical body of Christ, the church. The cleansing of the temple was necessarily, says Malachi, a way of urging us to think about the purification generally of the sons of Levi, a reformation of the church. By purging the worship of God, he was sending a very clear message. He was about the reformation of his father's people. And beloved, you see that also in this text so very clearly. Here you have Christ's glory displayed 
in his hatred for sin generally, and in his love for godliness and purity. And we can't miss that this is part of his office as well. Beloved, you remember. You remember how Zechariah puts it to us. When he blessing that would come through Christ. It was that through him we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. In other words, it was part of Christ's calling, his, his office, not only to redeem from the curse of the law, but really to reform his people so that they would serve him in purity and righteousness, in holiness and righteousness. As Titus 2, 14 puts it so very pointedly, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Beloved, if he, pur- if he purged the temple, if he had a zeal to purge away the dross of the earthly temple of brick and mortar, You and I are also to see here that he is earnest in purging that living temple made of his people. He will purify the sons of Levi because that is his office. And as he is zealous to purify the public worship of his father's name in the temple, he is zealous for the honor of his father to the glory of God that he would purify his body, the church. Here you have the God-man hating sin, though manifestly loving his people. In Isaiah 11, you have this picture of Christ. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Christ in this moment enters the church as a clear reformer. He will will urge mortification of sin and living unto God. And he will do so zealously. You see, friend, here you and I have a picture in its broader sense of one who could say perfectly, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Any innovation of man any impurity, Christ is zealously set against it. When his people need reformation, Christ is a zealous reformer. And here you have the God-man. That is, one possessed of true humanity while remaining entirely the eternal God. Saying that as a man, he hates vanity, and loves purity. And friend, as you read Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, you recognize that 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 disposition is unchanged. You remember how when Christ comes to the churches that were called in his name, amongst whom he walked, being in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, Do you see his zeal there for the reformation of his churches? It's the same self-zeal that you find here in John chapter 2. Christ is zealous about the reformation of his church. But there is a third and a final point that I want us to think about this morning. And it's one that I think we can't forget. And, And it takes in, as it were, everything we've said up to this point, but expands on it. 
want you to notice that again he refers to the temple here as his father's house. But there are three questions that could come to us. The first question we could ask is, well, well, what part of his father's house was being purged? What part? I've already told you that this was the, this was the vast court, what we call the court of the Gentiles. And here, Christ includes that as part of his father's house. Now, what was the purpose of the court of the Gentiles? The court of the Gentiles, you, you, would, you would look in vain to find it in Solomon's temple. You'll find no record of it, for instance, either in the tabernacle. Right? What, what the purpose of it was, was to give those who were ceremonially unclean, those who were either Gentiles or those who were simply Jews but unclean for various reasons, an opportunity to come as close as they could within the law to the worship of God. It gave them, in other words, an opportunity to come, as it were, to the entrance, but no further. They could not, for instance, gain access into the court of Israel under Solomon's day or the court of women and then the court of Israel and Herod's day. They were kept, they were kept outside, but the court of the Gentiles allowed them still to be near the center of God's worship. And it's that place that Christ purges a place that was devoted for the ceremonially unclean, for Gentiles. The second question we have to ask, though, is what was in this place when Christ was there? Well, friend, it was filled with merchants and money changers. Where were the Gentiles? Where were the Gentiles? Where were the ceremonially unclean? That's an important question to ask, and I think one that we often forget to ask here. But beloved, as you look at this text, the point is is really straightforward. This place was supposed to be the place for the stranger, the place for the unclean that they might worship him, that they might that they might come before God as the law then allowed. And they weren't there. They were filled with merchants. And that brings another question. Why? Why was it that, that the Jews could fill this place as they did? Friend, the first thing I want you to recognize is that this, so many commentators these days who ought to know better, assume that this is because the Jews had some kind of malice toward the Gentiles. That they didn't want the Gentiles in that court. That's patently false. That is not true at all. In fact, that malice isn't present at all in the Gospels. What's, what's actually present is, is the, this zeal among the Pharisees for proselytizing the Gentiles. In other words, beloved, the court of the Gentiles was not filled with Gentiles because there was a lack of missionary zeal among the Pharisees or Sadducees. You remember, Christ says of them, he says, it is you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. They were zealous, but the Gentiles weren't there. How would they come? How would the Gentiles be brought to his father's house, which was a house of prayer? 
Well, friend, the answer is, of course, only through Messiah. The Pharisees didn't lack missionary zeal. The court of the Gentiles was not small, such that it couldn't simply, such that it only excluded those who would have otherwise wanted to be there. The Gentiles weren't there because it was Messiah alone who would bring them in. I want you to notice that that is the case in the scriptures. God says to his son, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be a servant to raise up the tribes of Judah and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles. It was Christ who would bring in the Gentiles, not Israel. Of course, the Lord himself. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. So how does that inform our understanding of our text this morning? Well, friend, how what you and I should see here is that Christ is pushing out the merchants. Pushing out the merchants in the court of the Gentiles as the one who would bring the Gentiles to his father. You say, Pastor, I'm not sure I see that. That seems a bit, a, a bit strained. Can I just remind you what you read from Isaiah 56? It might even be worthwhile for you to turn back there for a moment. That's the text that Christ quotes from in the second cleansing. Note what Isaiah 56 reads. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. And later on he says, Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful. And note this, in my house of prayer. What is Christ doing when he cleanses the court of the Gentiles? Why does he quote from Isaiah 56 in the second cleansing? To make room for the stranger and the eunuch. To bring in those who were once ceremonially unclean to the Father. And yes, this is all symbolic, but it's so very crucial. Christ is telling them that the worship of his Father will now be made far more open. And he will do it. He leaves the Galilee of the Gentiles to make room in the house of prayer for the unclean. And beloved, that is our final point this morning. That here and what would have been so evident to everybody in the court court of the Gentiles was that Christ had a zeal. Christ had a zeal to make room for the unclean that they might come to his Father. The God-man was here eager, beloved, to bring those who were once excluded to the Lord. And you see this zeal so very potently throughout the Gospels. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He was zealous to cleanse this temple, He was zealous to make room for the unclean because he is zealous that sinners would come. 
and take hold of him. In Isaiah 53, this zeal is communicated to us in a powerful way. It's said there that Christ will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. The God-man has a zeal to bring the unclean to him. And what, what will satisfy him, says the prophet, when he sees those who were once excluded making use of his saving benefits? Can, can, I, can I read you a quote that I think really encapsulates this for us so very clearly? It's, it's from James Durham. He says, on that text in Isaiah 53, here's what you and I are supposed to see. That Christ is graciously pleased to account it satisfaction to him for all his soul travail to have sinners making use of him for their own good. He accounts it sufficient reward if we will but give him our souls to be saved by him in his own way and will make use of his death and sufferings for that end. Such is the zeal that Christ has for those who were excluded that they might now have access to the Father. He counts it soul satisfaction that they might make use of him so. Christ was zealous then, beloved, for his Father's house for many reasons. He was zealous that his Father's prerogatives would be maintained. Zealous that his father's people would be purged. Zealous that the provision that God the Father had made through his son, that the unclean would even have access to him, would be pressed. And beloved, in all of those things, Christ manifested zeal. In this moment and throughout the duration of his ministry. Friend, as we close and apply this text, You might say, well, the first question is, how are we like Christ? Do I have a zeal for the purity of God's worship? Do I have a zeal for the reformation of the church? Do I have a zeal to see those who are strangers to God brought to him through Christ? My friend, I would submit to you that that's not the question that you and I should be asking in this text. That's not the point at all. The point, you remember, is given to us in John 17, John 2.17. It's what the disciples saw. They saw Christ. They saw in this a glimpse of his glory. And so the real question you and I are supposed to ask as we leave this text is, do you adore this Christ? One who is so holy spotlessly so, that that he loves holiness and purity over all, that he detests sin wherever he sees it, that he is zealously set against it. Do you adore that Christ? Do you adore a Christ who also brings in the outcast, that he makes room for them, that they might have access to the throne of grace. Well, beloved, it is the Christian who can say that that these two things that they see in Christ, 
this white, hot holiness, and this unfathomable mercy, that they adore him for both. Beloved, it is, it is the experience of the Christian to be able to say that I adore him because he hates my sin more than I do. That I love him because I know that he loves righteousness more than me. That I marvel and worship because there is one who is laboring for my reformation. Who will, will present me a chaste virgin on the final day. And I adore him for that and I also adore him for the great grace and the mercies he's shown by bringing me once a stranger and making me now a son of God. Beloved, the believer will adore Christ for both. They will adore him because of his holiness. And they will adore him because of his grace. This is a picture of glory. And so the question is, is this the Christ you love? Do you love him, he who is the inveterate enemy of your sin, and also the invincible lover of your soul? And so the exhortation from this text is that we are to adore him. The disciples saw this much from him. In this, they saw, they remembered, and they beheld his glory. And so we are to do likewise. And friend, you and I are also commanded to go to the same Christ. This moment is given to us, not simply so that we might have some kind of historical knowledge, This moment is given to us to present to us the Christ that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Christ with with whom you and I have to do. Beloved, do you realize that this Christ is still zealous about the purity of his worship? You realize that he's still zealous about the reformation of his church. You realize that he's still zealous in bringing lost souls to himself. Beloved, that is the same Christ who as God and man lives today. Go to him. Amen.